If you are a healthcare provider, payer, or administrator without a technical degree, and you want to better understand all of this blockchain stuff, you should check out a new online Udemy course meant to teach non-technical people about blockchain's implications on healthcare. The simple course includes sections on cryptography, consensus mechanisms, smart contracts, and how they apply to the healthcare industry. You can even take the course on your smartphone, and you'll get a certificate when you complete it. The course is $200, but you can get it for $75 if you use promo code HEALTHUNCHAINED, which is one word, HEALTHUNCHAINED. You can find the link to the course in the show notes. Hi! Happy to see you're back for another episode of Health Unchained. I'm amazed to see how the community has grown in just the nine months since when I first published with Raj Sharma from HealthWiz, who's actually mentioned later in this episode. I want to remind everyone to follow me on Twitter, if you have a Twitter account, and I usually post stuff on there pretty pretty often. If you have any feedback for the show, I'd really love to hear it. Shoot me a message on either LinkedIn or Telegram. I take suggestions really seriously, and I would like to bring you the best content especially in this really interesting emerging field. So thank you again for listening, and let's do the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to Health Unchained. Today we have Austin Jones joining us from Niceville, Florida to speak with us about personal health data and his startup, Unity Health Score. Austin also hosts his own podcast called Healthcare Goals, where he talks to healthcare industry leaders and features stories from patients with chronic diseases. And, you know, these patients often have an important story to tell. I listened to his episode five with elderly care expert Yasmin Shah and cerebral palsy patient Jason, and I thought it was really, really inspirational. Um, so Austin, thank you for joining the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Ray. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, really, really honored to be talking with you right now. Yeah, that's great. I think uh, you know the first time I saw you pitch your company, Unity Health Score, was at Distributed Health, uh, and I've actually had a few guests from that conference, so it's been really a good uh, experience for me. But um, tell me a little bit about how you got into the healthcare industry. Yeah, so um, in in 2014, my grandfather passed away, and my grandmother has had dementia. She had it for a number of years before that, and it was um, it was either you know we put her in a home or some people live with her. So I took my son and and my girlfriend, and we moved in with my grandmother. And uh, at the time, I, I, I wound up having to work a newspaper route. Um, I was working from, you know, 1 a.m. to, to 10 a.m. And it, <laughs> that and the family, it was just too difficult. And I was having to work nighttime. 
because uh, my grandmother is always trying to go somewhere or forgetting who people are, um, and that's a lot of doctor's appointments throughout the day. So it, it just became too difficult, and I found I liked entrepreneurism. started a catering company. It uh, went really well. But in being a caregiver for my grandmother, I uh, experienced a lot of issues in healthcare where, you know, one of her specialists, your nephrologist, would write her a new medicine, and then a couple of days would go by after we'd get it filled and give it to her, and her primary care would go, no, 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 you, you guys, this medicine conflicts with this medication. Hmm. And we're like, well, we've been to it for a couple of days. Um, so stuff like that, uh, every now and then, um, like for instance, right now she's she's coming home on uh, Tuesday. She had a, a fall and and um, she had a hairline fracture on her hip. Oh. Um, and they're having an issue right now in the rehab facility she's in, trying to obtain one of her records. Um, so you know we've noticed issues and lack of communication between specialists. We've noticed issues in uh, the 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 aggregation of her records and how they're siloed in different areas. So notice, notice a good number of issues in healthcare. And I've, I've always been somewhat of a geek. So, you know, once these issues started happening, I wanted to go online and, and learn about them. And uh, that brought me down the rabbit hole. I saw really how messed up the healthcare industry can be. I, I, I read about what's happening with people's private medical information Mm-hmm. I read about, you know, my grandmother gets hit by a lot of scams. Uh, she gets a lot of scam calls and a lot of uh, scam mail. And part of that is from, from potentially because um, they people can buy marketing data from uh, some of her dementia medication. So they buy, they buy marketing data that has that in there, and they, they know they can target people with dementia. So I actually, if, if you want to read an article on that, I can send that to you. There's a good little bit of, of info floating around on how um, people can target vulnerable dementia patients with with uh, buying marketing information, whether it's uh, a diagnosis or or they know that that medication is for dementia. So how do they know um, that the patient or your grandmother was taking this medication? Like, where do they buy it from? I know there are companies like uh, Lexus Nexus, who um, it's a risk solutions company, and they hold a lot of data and offer it to people. I read in, a, in an article that you sent me actually about health insurers. Uh, in that article, it said LexisNexis uses 442 non-medical personal attributes to predict a person's medical costs, and it like has 78 billion records uh, from more than 10,000 different public and proprietary sources, including people's cell phone numbers, uh, bankruptcy records, property records, where where they lived throughout their life. Uh, and you know they use this information to predict health risks and to associate how much that person would cost for health insurance companies. Is that where this data is coming from? Like these sources? So the it's it's, it's a fairly vast world, and to be entirely honest with you, I I don't know the exact way that it's happening. What I do know is that uh, pharmacies can sell information, hospitals can sell information, electronic health record vendors can sell information. You can sell private medical information so long as you take away, I believe the HIPAA regulation is 15 identifiable factors. 
So, so it's, it's a certain number of identifiable factors. When those are removed, that information can be sold. Um, you know, there's a number of organizations, Axiom, Epsilon, uh, Quivia, I don't know if I pronounced that right, IQVIA. IQVIA, right. Uh, that are, They're a big that one. That are aggregating this information and then, and then brokering it. Um, so some people buy it for, for marketing purposes. Some people buy it for research purposes. Um, so I, I, I can't with a certainty tell you exactly, uh, who's, who, who they're, who, who people are buying the, um, pharmaceutical information from or the diagnosis information, but it's the capability to buy that and use it is out there. Um, and I, I believe it's through the larger data brokers that that information is being obtained. I see. So tell me more specifically about what the goal is for Unity Health Score and how is it, what problem is it trying to solve? So we're trying to solve a number of problems. Um, the first is just people not having their medical information siloed for themselves. It's in so many different places. Um, so, you know, we're, we're wanting to address people not having medical information and with enough users, enough people aggregating their medical information on our platform, we can help them sell it. The problem that we really want to address, we can't address until we see mass adoption. And that's what so many people in this space are trying to see. They see mass adoption before they can truly reach the, the, the critical mass to, to so make mass, a difference here. Mass adoption of what exactly? Users. So, um, you know, you're, you're familiar with the, the My31 app, Humanity? Yes. With, so, you know. Richie, Arturo. Yeah, 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 Richie and Michael De Palma. So, you know, what, what they're doing is that they're striving for a critical mass. Um, they're striving for enough users to be able to say, hey, we're... We're here. This is what we stand for, and um, you know you should really buy data from these people versus going around them to buy their data. Um, so we're we're in a similar boat, except um, the critical mass we're striving for is um, one of the strategies we have that differs is through employers. So we want to strive for a critical mass of of medium to large sized companies and with enough of those that share the same insurance we can approach the insurance and say hey uh, we have this many users or, or mutual users customers and we want to make risk modeling health insurance more transparent so so the the current means of mitigating risk for health insurance is to raise costs that is you know they're doing little things like if you buy a gym membership they'll reimburse you know how much you're paying for your gym membership but in most cases, mitigating risk is solely through raising costs. And, you know, there's a, there's a correlation between how much money you have and how healthy you are. There's generally poor people are less healthy. So to mitigate risk by only raising costs is uh, it's a window for error, mm -hmm. if you really think about it. Because you're taking away people's resources to be healthy by the more unhealthy they are. Um, so what I'd like to see is some form of risk modeling that doesn't go around people to obtain their data to predict their costs, 
it works directly with them to determine, you know, if, if their health is controllable or non-controllable. I, I think that's the big issue, you know. Um, so 2015 uh, was, a, was a fairly bad year for me. I, I lost my mother. Um, I watched her battle drug addiction my whole life. Um, so she, she overdosed the, her last time. And it really ate me up. I, I, I put on a lot of weight. Um, I was actually, I was over, uh, 305 pounds and I let myself get that way. You know, I was, I was drinking heavily. I was eating horribly. I was not taking care of myself. And, you know, one day I realized it had to stop. I was like, you know, I, I can't live like this. I'm not going to be able to watch my son live his life to his full extent. I got to make some changes. So I wound up losing almost 100 pounds. Well, I guess I lost 105. I got down to 200. Um, I've put on a little bit of weight since then, trying to lose skin. But you look good, man. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like the 300. But, uh, um, you know, I, I, think, I think there's a lot of people in America, if you compare America to, uh, you know, some of the smaller European countries that have universal health care. Their health problems aren't type two diabetes and heart disease. Their health problems are dementia. Their you know heart disease definitely is a, a larger one in those in those countries, but it's not so much from um, habit and behavioral and environmental related causes as it is here from you know smoking and eating um, uh, uh, you know high cholesterol foods. Um, so I, I think I think you know. If we ever want to tackle healthcare in America, we, we really need to be able to di- differentiate between what health is controllable and what's not controllable. Because there's too many people like me in 2015 who are taking up resources, going into hospital, taking up hospital beds, um, who are just simply not taking good care of themselves. Now, there's some people who are kind of in between, you know, who live in what what are known as food deserts, and it's areas that. Uh, don't have access to, to nutritional eating. And it's areas where people are working three jobs. So, you know, when you're working three jobs a day, um, you don't have that much time to do a meal prep um, and, 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 and take your time to go shopping even. So there are areas where people are just living off fast food because that's, that's what their schedule, you know, allows for. So um, it's not as easy as just telling people to hold themselves accountable and eat better. But I do think that, some of that should come into play and, and, and risk modeling should be a more transparent process. Um, you know, testing for thyroids, testing for thyroid problems is, uh, it's not as expensive as it used to be. And, and insurance companies authorize that more often than they used to. Um, but you know, there, there's, there's problems where people are saying, Hey, you know, I'm dieting, I'm exercising. They're telling their doctor, and you know, their doctor probably just writes them off as being fat, not, not eating right. And then they find out so so many years or so many months later there was a thyroid issue. And because risk modeling is not a transparent process, people can't go to the insurance company and say, hey, you know, I, I really, really think we should test for this or there's an indication of this. Um, and it, it really needs to be a transparent process. Insurance companies for the risk modeling should work with people to mitigate the risk instead of just – uh, big brother spying on them to, to predict their costs. Um, so how and, do you, you know, suggest my... to make it more transparent? What is your uh, proposal then to make things to, more transparent, to make the data for, go directly from the patients to the researchers without the need for like a, a data 
broker, I guess. Well, well, people people need to be the data broker. And insurance companies are buying data. And if they stop buying data and work directly with people to obtain through their risk modeling, they were spending less money on data to do it. And they had a transparent risk model. I, I think we could justify, you know, lowering premium costs for, for health-based incentives. But how they're going to do that, you know, on our platform is the health score. The health score tells you, um, you know, whether your health is controllable or uncontrollable. And then you work with the insurance company to create milestones in a health plan based off your health score to live healthier. So let's talk a little bit more about the controllable, controllable versus uncontrollable um, health data points. So you're talking about things like, you know, over drinking or um, lack of exercise. Those thing, those things you're saying would be controllable activities or behaviors. Yeah, o- overeating, um, you know, excessive drinking, smoking. Those, th- those, those would be you know controllable factors. Non-controllable factors would be a rare genetic disease, an aggressive cancer. Um, and there's a lot of gray area there, actually, and, and some of those uh, some of those controllable factors can cause the non-controllable factors or, or amplify them. Risk modeling is risky business, and that's something that I've uh, found out in the, the past year of, of trying to change this. Um, I've spoken with a few people, like when, when I was at Distributed Health, uh, I spoke with someone from, from Aetna. We talked a little bit about it. And, they were telling me about how complicated risk modeling is and it's, it doesn't, they don't think it's just as simple as, as working directly with people for it. And I can see why, because people aren't going to want to be honest. They know their premiums are going to get raised. Right. Mm. So, so yeah, we, we've realized that, that risk modeling is, is very risky and um, what we're trying to do right now is acquire a board of specialists, um, you know, a gastroenterologist, a nephrologist, a cardiologist, um, et cetera, et cetera. We, we want to find a number. I mean, I could go on. I think we have about a list of like a little over uh, almost 20 specialists um, to individually weigh in on what the big health impacts they're aware of for their specialty are and how they tie in with, with other um, factors. Because co-infection, if you look at, uh, you know, one of the things we're, we're measuring is mortality. And if you look at co-infection, that's it's a it's a big factor for mortality. Usually, the body can handle, you know, one even major issue, but when you tie in multiple things, that's when the body really has a hard time overcoming it and, and considering it controllable. Um, so, you know, we're we're trying to configure how co how various co-infections work. We're trying to figure out um, at what point a controllable disease is uncontrollable from various factors and it's 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 really really not easy and we're not going to have the health score built until we have an active user base that we've worked with for some, for a number of times and then we've actually done is we've taken a few steps back and what we're entering the market with is our data score and that is an educational evaluation tool it educates you on your data what all data about you medical-wise, is out there on the market, how it's being used, and how valuable it is, and how much of it you have captured on our platform. So if you have, you know, roughly half of the medical information you could potentially have floating around, then you're, you're, you'd have a 50% 
uh, a data score, and then the, the valuation would follow after that. Um, but it's more of an educational and, and valuation tool to educate you on the importance of your data, how it's being used, how valuable it is, how much of it you've captured. Um, so our goal is to approach individuals, employers, and organizations. I'm actually talking with uh, the city of Pensacola, Florida right now. They're wanting to implement smart city aspects. Um, they were talking about, they have big issues with rainwater because they're, they're a coastal city and uh, some other things like that. And they're wanting to put QR codes in the town to tell people about historical parts when they scan it. And I said, look, why don't we try to make Pensacola, Florida the first data autonomous city in the world? And uh, I was at a One Million Cups presentation I did a couple weeks ago. There's a few city developers there that are trying to obtain grants for smart cities. They really like that. They like you know, the idea of a data autonomous city. They're trying to figure out how do we get people to want to move to Pensacola and stay here. Escambia County, Pensacola is in, is one of the poorest counties in the state of Florida. Um, it's got some major issues. It's like the sex trafficking capital of the world. Um, it's uh, some really poor areas and, uh, you know, AI, big data, automation during the workforce is going to have a major impact on these marginalized poor communities, these communities that don't own real estate, don't have a financial portfolio, and most of their, their jobs are entry-level work. I mean, we're, we're going to see, like, 3D construction, printing, um, you know, drones, there's a lot of things that are going to be integrating into the workforce over the coming decades. And these folks are really, really going to be hurt by this integration. So them being able to own their data as a financial asset is, is going to be a big combatant for the integration of automation, big data AI into the workforce. And if you think 10 years into the future, or not 10 years, 10 generations, being able to own your entire lineage's data as an asset can can be the, the game changer because 10 generations down the road, I mean, who knows what the workforce is going to look like. There's a lot of economists right now who are scratching their heads wondering what kind of new jobs are we going to, are we going to see come up? Cause they see all this technology coming out that's going to take jobs away. And they're like, well, what, what, what are the new jobs? And this was an issue with uh, the, the industrial revolution and the end of the guild system. And people were wondering what kind of new jobs would show up. So hopefully, you know, we, we do see some really new, crazy, innovative jobs, but they're probably not going to be entry-level jobs. Maybe they will be. But regardless, there, there's going to be people hurt by, by uh, the scarcity and the competition of, of the job and uh, the job community. And um, people owning their data as an asset is going to be a big combat for that. So the city of Pensacola wants to help make that happen. I'm actually meeting with the mayor of Destin, Florida, a week after next to talk about this. And I'm trying to get city government um, aware of, you know, what's what's going to be happening over the coming decades, what they need to do. I'm talking with uh, Fort Walton Beach High School, Niceville High School. I'm talking with a couple different schools, and we're trying to approach this on a community level. So our goal is to get the the city government involved, schools involved, local businesses. There's some employers over here. Um, you know, some employers have up to. Uh, tens of thousands of employees. So it's, uh, it's, we're, we're offering this as a health and financial wellness service. And, um, you know, financial wellness from the revenue from your data and the ownership of it and the control of its use on the market. And, you know, health wellness from your health score and, and our, our risk modeling and part of partnering with the schools 
Um, we're trying to link people with clinical trials. A lot of times your doctor isn't going to tell you if there's a clinical trial they don't know. Um, they're just going to tell you about what medicines or treatments they're aware of. But the more innovative stuff happening in the clinical trials isn't always, people aren't always aware of it. So um, I'm talking with the University of West Florida. It's our, our bigger university over here. Um, we wanted to partner up with them and, and streamline all, all their, uh, their clinical trial participant acquisition so that we can identify with any of our users who would, would fit the criteria of their, their trial, link them up with it. Um, I'm going to be talking to Florida State University soon about that as well. So, so we're really trying. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, no. So I'm hearing you. So you're kind of doing a lot, or at least you're preparing to do a lot. You're reaching out to city governments, also to universities and high schools and different communities. And I think that's really great that you're trying to start from the community level. And I think that um, will help you, uh, you know, in terms of a grassroots movement, might gain some momentum. So I wonder, what is the status of the actual company, you know, Unity Health Score now? And what can people do now? Or is this still a proposal for an app or application like what what stage are you at so um i actually was introduced to a guy named cj wilson he's had a company since 2013 called my health and they are a emergency personal health record platform um so they'll they'll aggregate your medical information and then they'll they'll give you a qr code either for uh, construction companies can do hard hat stickers. Uh, people can get, you know, wallet cards to put in their wallet. It's a QR code that when scanned and entered the pen, your emergency contact, your blood type, your your allergies, that emergency info is right there. Uh, and then they do they do a little bit of, uh, um, you know, wellness and, and helping people find um, you know, treatment options and and things like that. So I was introduced to him and, uh, you know, told him what we're trying to do with, with the transparent risk modeling and leaving people out clinical trials and getting them paid for their data, monetizing their data. And uh, he, he really liked it. So we, we wound up um, actually partnering. And right now what we're doing is I have, uh, I've got a back end guy. That's Paul Verdone. That's our CTO. He's in New York. And I've got a front end team out of India we have them developing our application with my health backend so we can feed uh, forms data to my health platform and we can acquire the users and um, whenever they consent to selling the data at that point you know we can transact it and take a percentage from so where we're at right now is we're in development of this application and you know how how this relationship partnership works is my health is kind of like the bank of trust they'll never uh, share your information without your control they'll never sell it and if you want to elect to sell your information you can do so through unity health score um, so it's, it's it's a good system of checks and balances. We're going to be doing this through the cra the uh, a cloud server, their cloud server initially, um, and then he's he's giving us a uh, acquisition commission for clients that we acquire him, and uh, it, it's given us a good scale. So when we acquire clients, and I introduce his company to my local community, 
eventually we're going to have enough funds to switch from the cloud-based app that integrates with their system. We're going to move both of our systems over to um, either. So, so our CTO really likes the Ethereum blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I'm kind of leaning towards IBM because IBM doesn't associate with cryptocurrency. And there's a lot of times where I tell people what we're going to do. They're like, oh, Ethereum, you guys are cryptocurrency. I'm like, no, no, we're not, we're not doing anything with cryptocurrency. Right. Um, so that's a little still up in the air, but where we're at right now is integrating with this cloud system. And then from there, you know, being able to demonstrate our scale, being able to earn up revenue and, and then transition into a blockchain. Interesting. And, and what use case or what use, how will you use blockchain in terms of like storing the data or what kind of transactions will be happening over the blockchain? So we'll be using it to store the data, and I think the biggest use case is the um, distribution. So our vision is to help researchers monetize their data, too. So if someone does a clinical trial, of course, they're in control of who can buy the data. When that data is sold, the research team behind that clinical trial that sourced that data, they get a small payout. And eventually... Let's just say, you know, we're in operation for 10 years on the blockchain and we've done thousands of clinical trials. Any researcher can go on our platform, request specifics of an individual's criteria for health, and they can cherry pick various participants in various studies, various control groups. They can uh, cross experiment with the same participants from various studies they can take bits and pieces from different studies and, and do their own. Um, this will reduce variables. This will make, uh, I mean, essentially it'll outsource clinical research. They can send and do one study across the country where instead of everyone goes to the same facility, everyone goes to a, a quest diagnostics or everyone goes to their primary care or everyone goes to their nephrologist and they get a test ran and it, it all gets sent back into our system. So it doesn't have to be in a centralized location. Um, and we want, you know, we want interactive research. We want people to be able to, researchers be able to ask questions. They want, we want researchers to be able to look at one step and go, hey, uh, this group's result was really interesting. Let's ask this group to go get this this different test done to see what the results would be. Um, we we want to make research a lot more interactive and transparent while still maintaining people's medical privacy, still maintaining people's, uh, you know, their identity, all the information. So, so that's, that's our major use case for blockchain is, is we'll be able to outsource clinical research. We'll be able to, without a researcher having to know someone's identity or their face, um, they can get the data they need and interact with it at the same time. What would you consider to be your biggest challenge to accomplishing those goals? My biggest challenge is getting people to see the problem, whether it's the lack of transparency and risk modeling or whether that's how their data is being used um, for you know, dementia patients or for people, you know, for, for creating medicine. They can, they can go look at your genetic information, um, various medical records, pharmaceutical company can use that to build a new medicine. So they use your data to build a new medicine and they can look at your financial data and they can, they can map it around um, how much to cost you. And they just totally go around you to pin your information and, and, and uh, 
getting people to care about that is, is probably the biggest issue because it's a very tech heady topic. My biggest issue is getting this topic to go from big, you know, tech head to conferences talking about this to city mayors and principals and, 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 and managers at your local grocery store. That's, that's the biggest, the biggest problem for me is, is getting people to take this seriously because there's sometimes where I, I start talking about this and the issues with data and what's going to happen with, with automation and big data and AI over the, the coming years. And people kind of laugh at me a little bit. You know how people laugh at uh, Bill Gates and Elon Musk for talking about the potential dangers of AI. Um, I, I, I don't so much worry about it becoming self-sentient. I think of it as more as a, a, a distribution with, with the data issue. But um, uh, yeah, I think I think getting people to take this seriously and care is the biggest thing. But I'm I'm finally starting to uh, make a little bit of headway. It, you know, all of last year I had been reaching out to different people and talking to different organizations and getting, you know, different feedback. And some people just flat out don't believe me when I tell them their medical information is for sale. No, HIPAA wouldn't allow that. Well, HIPAA does. Um, right. As long so as it's I, I think identified. Culture, but then yeah, again, as long as there's been like research that says people can, with the right piece of information and a good enough algorithm, you could un-de-identify people and target and find the specific individual to whom which that data belongs to. Yeah, you can re-identify it all. You know, if you know that someone, if you're looking at a test result from a hospital, all you really have to do, you could look up uh, banking data and see at what time, what, you know, what was paid to produce that record at what facility. Um, yeah, there's a number of different, uh, the, the term is actually cross-referencing. Cro through cross-referencing different data points, um, you, you can re-identify any record. And there's no HIPAA regulation against that. So you know, this is a, it, it's a dry topic. It's not, um, it's not like talking about the football game, right? It's not like talking about the fight last night. Right. Uh, we're talking about um, a very dry topic. And, and one thing I've noticed, too, is sometimes people, because I'm telling them about lucrative aspects of their medical information, what's happening, even though I'm trying to do the right thing, I get associated because I'm trying to touch their medical data. I get associated with the, the, the bad people I'm telling them about, or they're just too skeptical. Um, you know, uh, like uh, so, Davida, really large employer, they have forty-seven thousand employees across the country. I, I was talking to their um, director for public and government relations. He actually approached uh, my company through our contact email on our website. He thought we'd send it interesting. I was talking to him for a little bit. Talked to some benefits people, sounded like they liked us. Uh, once we got around to human resources, that's where we, uh, we really got shut down because they're, they're you know, where, where's your use case? Where can you show you've done this and that? And we're still, you know, too early for, for a lot of the big companies that want to be able to trust us and, and do this. Um, right. But, I'm assuming you know, most, I, I think, of them, most of them would like to see a proof of concept and actually demo a product. And I think that's something you still are in development yeah we I, we got really lucky um with with meeting my health and cj wilson um because that's that's a, that's a hefty amount of uh, development dollars to, to be able to do that um you know i have a catering business and, and i do uh freelancing and some other odd jobs and he, even at that i don't i don't have i don't have the finance i don't have the capital to do that yet 
So um, yeah, we that that relationship just started forming a little over a month ago. Um, so I think I, I think you know people are also seeing more things come out on the news about what's going on with their data, and it's making them you know reevaluate this. Um, so I, I'm really optimistic. I think we're going to have our 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 product online soon. And I think more of these news stories are going to come out. I'm getting really involved with my community. Um, I actually, one thing I'm doing right now is working with some of the local schools for our, 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 our media and our marketing. We've got some of them helping us, you know, make videos and things like that. And we, we really want to be a community grassroots-based company. So I think once we start releasing some of this content, where we're working with students at local high schools and, and universities, and, uh, you know, we start approaching these local businesses and, and we start making deals with the, the city and the county government and they help us expand the local businesses. I, I, I think I think we're going to see a big difference. But, yeah, right now we're, we're just so early level that it's we're still trying to get people informed about what's going on and uh, build a community approach to where we're at. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. Health insurers are vacuuming up details about you, and it could raise your rates. That's the title of a ProPublica article about health insurance written by Marshall Allen, who's an award-winning healthcare reporter. And in it, it discusses the different ways insurance companies take your personal information to adjust your planned premiums, as well as assess for risk in a member population. Health scores are generated from hundreds of different data points, including race, home ownership, arrest records, social media activity, and TV habits. Also, whether or not you're paying your bills on time. In fact, there's a way to pull a personal report about yourself on the LexisNexis website. LexisNexis is one company that actually acts as a data broker for multiple industries, including healthcare. The article also describes the biases and risks of having inaccurate information in your data sets. A link to the LexisNexis page where you can actually request to retrieve all your personal information which potentially could be sold to people on the market. And also a link to the article in the show notes. And now back to the show with Austin Jones from Unity Health Score. Have you spoken to hospitals about your system, your potential system? Yeah, so actually, uh, the Twin Cities Hospital in Niceville, Florida is where I usually bring my grandma when she has an issue. And they've had this little machine tucked away in the corner for years. And it's uh, a a self-administration tool, like for people to go and sit down at and self-administer them to the hospital. But I guess it was taking too long than having someone at the, the front desk do it. So they tucked it away in the corner. And one of the last times I was there, I asked them, I was like, hey, uh, that thing didn't work out very well. And they were like, no. And I, I pulled out my um, my phone. I pulled my, our prototype out. I pulled the QR code out. And I said, well, imagine just um, administering people by scanning this code and having all their records on file. And he said, that sounds too good to be true. So well, we're working on it. Um, I'm actually talking to my grandmother's primary care doctor right now about this and she has to make sure that um 
with with tech compliance and legalities and everything she can do that but if, if it all checks out my grandmother's primary care who sees a couple hundred patients a week um she's uh she's going to be putting this in her office because she sees you know mostly older people and older people they're, they're just not that fast you know for them to sit down for them to pull their wallet out them to pull out individual cards, their insurance card, for them to pull out uh, the paperwork they have on them. It, it takes a good bit of time versus being able to just sit down and take one card out that has a, a QR code on it, have them scan it. Um, right. So, you know, yeah, we, I, I, I talked with Twin Cities Hospital. I've tried to talk to other hospitals and I, I really haven't made much ground. I've, I've gotten emails and I've emailed like CEO secretaries, but um, I'm sure they get a lot of people trying to do business with them, especially, you know, my area, uh, Fort Walton Beach Medical and uh, Sandestin Sacred Heart are, they were, a few years ago, they were in the top 10 most expensive hospitals in the country. Hmm. And then we have a few others that are on that list as well. Um, not in the top 10, but they were, I think like, you know, 15, 17, around there. Um, so I'm sure these people have, you know, folks wanting to do business with them all the time. And, and I think... I think before we work with the hospitals, we need to have, you know, some user adoption. Uh, we need to have um, some people in the local area using this. One thing I tried to do was work with first responders. And uh, when when I talked with them, they were like, well, you know, this sounds like it could help, but I'm, I'm just not so sure because a lot of us already have our, uh, if we're diabetic, we already have this information on us. And... Um, you know, this definitely could help make a huge difference, but um, I don't think they really saw the viability in it, and they saw me as too much of a salesperson versus someone trying to, to go and help them. So one thing we're actually doing is uh, a commission program. We're not marketing this or anything because we don't want to be seen as a pyramid scheme. Mm -hmm. But if people want to elect into it, they can help um, sell the platform and they can get a commission. So my house platform is $24 a year. And, um, you know, through Unity Health Score, whenever we, we get a, a client, we get a commission, and we're willing to split that commission with our users that want to share the platform. And a goal of ours is to get some EMTs, firefighters, first responders uh, using it and, and then have them, you know, sell it and get a commission to other first responders because they're seen as peers and everybody else in a, in a community is, is seen as a civilian, especially a salesperson. So we have some strategies to, to obtain the mass adoption and get people to, to trust acquiring this tool. Um, and, you know, as, as far as, you know, what's going on in the community at hospitals I've approached, I think we're going to need, we're going to need the first responders to have our back. We're going to need to have some local businesses and, and a good a good number of people using this before hospitals ever really open up to it. Um, and then that just you know goes back to to the community. So, so you talked about my health as one of your partners, and I noticed that you have two other partners at least based on your website, uh, VirtuMed three hundred and sixty and Better Path. Do you want to talk? And yeah. Better Path actually was uh, featured in one of my episodes. I talked to CEO of that company, Matt uh, Cinderbrand. So all you listeners should check that episode out. I think it's 23. Uh, so, yeah, can you share a little bit about your partnerships with them? Yeah, so 
our, our partnership with Better Path, um, you know, once we're acquiring data, they're going to help us organize it. Um, they're going to be able to help us look at the health records and, and break it down into an organized data set that AI, uh, machine learning, would be able to understand um, and help us organize it and package it, which will be very important for not just for AI, but when we, for our own analytics, but for when we want to sell that information. Um, we don't want insurance. We don't want researchers to have to buy bulk information. We want them to be able to buy just the information they want. So, BetterPath is going to be able to help us a lot with the organization and distribution of the data. Um, and VirtuMed, they're they're still um, they're still in development. They're still trying to to acquire seed, but they have some really great technologies. Um, one is the mobile aesthetic analyzer. And that actually allows someone, it's, it's mostly for plastic surgery, but it can be retrofitted for a lot of other uses, such as uh, uh, sensing how sensitive someone's skin is or how tender someone's skin is, but how it works. You would pretty much pull out your phone camera, scan your face, scan your body, and then do that every six months to two years or so. And that way, a plastic surgeon could go back 20 years, because how plastic surgery works is they look at old pictures of you. And, and uh, they would actually be able to go back 20 years and replicate, you know, your body, how it looked then with wherever you wanted surgery on yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be a hefty amount of data from that. Um, they they want to do, you know, a, an immersive telediagnostic platform from that um, where, you know, they could diagnose various people from, from any remote location in the world on their platform. Um, so they're... They're, they're very early game. They're still trying to acquire seed. Um, but once once some of their technologies are online or get funded, we, we want to utilize the data from that and help the mutual users that are using that get paid for that data. Sure. Jumping off of that, uh, you mentioned you know, VirtuEd is still looking for seed funding. What's the status of funding for your company, and how is the company actually structured? Yeah, so initially we were rushing to do a seed round. Uh, we, we, we wanted some money to get things done, and um, since then, and since our partnership with My Health, we've taken a couple steps back, and we've said, "Hey, let's let's demonstrate some revenue, let's demonstrate some scale, because if 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 we go into a funding round and we already have revenue, you know, we'll be valued higher." Um, Definitely. Yeah, we're, uh, we're 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 waiting to do a funding round right now. We're at the point where we have the development capabilities to get our product online where we can start demonstrating some revenue. Um, it'll be a little bit before we can sell the data. We have to build a sizable data pool that researchers want to play with first. But, um, yeah, our goal right now is to not rush a funding round. We, we want to get our product online, so we have the capability to do so. We want to uh, demonstrate that we can generate revenue and we can scale. And at that point, you know, once we have enough users and once we... Once we've demonstrated um, that we can generate revenue, at that point we will want to do a seed round. Um, and I, I really can't say when that might be because it might take us um, six months to a year before we're comfortable with with uh, the users that we have and and how much revenue we're generating. And if, if we can use that to build our blockchain, then that's what we want to do. And we want to avoid a seed round. But if you know we we kind of stagnate and we we're only at two hundred thousand dollars and we're we're missing our three hundred thousand to integrate into the blockchain, which uh, my CTO told us we need five hundred thousand to do that. 
Um, at that point, you know, we will want to do a seed round for 300,000. Um, and, or maybe a little bit more if we haven't already spent some of the 200,000 we've acquired. So how many users, um, and, and the, how many users would that be? What's so when you say we're, um, we're wanting, mm-hmm. what's your target? We're wanting 10,000 in a centralized location because we're going to be doing clinical research in our immediate area. We're going to be sourcing study participants and, and things of that nature. So, you know, we're, we're really probably in Okaloosa County, in Escambia County, Florida, those are probably you know the the, the main areas we want to hit first. And once we have about ten thousand users in this area, at that point we we do want to start trying to get their data sold. I kind of want to learn more about the type of data that you intend to collect on this app or on this platform, uh, Unity Health Score. So in your white paper, you list a bunch of different types of data points um, that individuals can input including, you know, the obvious stuff like your name, date of birth, and that's the kind of sensitive information. But there's also demographic information that can also be tied to you, like your age, marital status, um, your race, religion, court data, public record information, your social media usage. That includes, like, what you're liking on Facebook or what you're liking on LinkedIn, um, Twitter, who you're following, what you're buying on Amazon, who your favorite team is on your NBA account, so who your pick is for the Super Bowl. So all these things are, is this something that people want to share with a health care app? Um, initially, no. So we're, we're starting with health data because the use case is very clear for ownership. The, the use case with health data, you know, I mean, HIPAA's regulation to make it, private and we're kind of going back into all the loopholes and and legalities and and starting where that data can be considered yours Mm -hmm. and from health data you know remember we're not just a health wellness company we're a financial wellness company we want to get you in control of all your data for a financial wellness service we want to help you broker all of your data Um, so while people don't see the viability in that initially I think with our data score, um, we'll, we'll eventually, you know, transition into other types of data, and we're going to be able to educate people on how valuable that data is. So, uh, the the marketing data, like who, what your hobbies are, and, and and who your your favorite athletes are, and things like that, that that will come into account. Um, you know, not initially, not right now. We're not going to be able to sell that type of data until you know we have a lot of users and we've already sold you know various types of information but we eventually want to integrate into you know typical average marketing data um and they we won't be acquiring that initially but um you know once we have half a million users um i think at about that point we we will start wanting to transition a little bit into other types of data um, and then once we have millions of users, if hopefully, um, once we get there, at that point we'll want to expand into all types of data, um, and and in, in various countries, different cultures. You know, we want to go into Europe, Asia, Africa. Um, or we're already trying to be, you know, prepare for GDPR and, and other types of regulations. Um, so yeah, initially no, people aren't really going to want to put that information on there. But we have that listed because it's it's in our uh, 
it's in our milestones. It's in our it's in our plan. You know, we we want to eventually acquire that type of information too. Right, and I think blockchain, if architected correctly, and your ecosystem is built out properly, and the incentives are all aligned, it can work. You can have people sharing that kind of information, still keeping their data secure and private, but to some level transparent enough where people can use it for research or whatever purposes. Uh, and then they could pay those individuals directly. So I, I get that. And I, I do also understand that you're still in the ideation phases of what your blockchain architecture will look like and what your actual user experience will be like. And that's fine. I think it's great that you know, you're know you putting all the various sources of data down right now. At least they're there. So at least you know what sources can be potential data points. Uh, it's obviously very challenging. And I think you you know that for sure. Um, but you know, what do you think is the hardest part about being an entrepreneur these days? I think it depends on what exactly you're doing. Um, you know, food, food is easy. The hardest part of that is just figuring out, you know, pertaining to your culture, what people want to eat. I started trying to do vegan food because that's what I wanted to do. And people weren't eating any of my food. I, I almost defaulted on my company when I first started it. And then I tried, uh, I tried hoagies. I tried Korean food. Um, my wife's Korean. Um, she's a quarter, but you know, I, her, her grandmother's actually here right now, and and she she's from Korea. So I've I've gotten eat a lot of Korean food. Turned me onto it. I wanted to help sell it, or I wanted to help spread it and show people Korean food. But um, you know, that's that sold more. But it was when I started doing barbecue that people really started enjoying my food. When I started doing greasy burgers, smoked mac and cheese, America, covered hot dogs. expect? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that goes back into our, kind of our risk modeling and, and how to address that. I think, you know, junk food is, is great. It's nice to have, but we also have to watch of it how much we eat. And I couldn't sell the healthy food. I couldn't sell uh, even good tasting healthy food. I, I had to sell the greasy stuff to make money. But then again, you know, you got to think, I'm not uh, just a restaurant, you know, we're, we're at fairs and festivals and I'm, I'm catering events and people want to splurge then, you know, they're having some drinks, they're out and about. So there's a lot of things to take into account. But I, I think, I think is, is an entrepreneur boiling it down is configuring what's going to make your business tick and what all the variables are that, that is going to impact that, whether it's food or uh, medical IT data, big data. Um, it, it doesn't matter what your landscape is. Sometimes it's harder than other, other landscapes, but the hardest thing for an entrepreneur is to configure what those variables and those ticks are that are going to make your business and your service and your products appealing. Um, so it really depends on uh, being able to identify those variables and, and implement them or or convey them in a way that people like. Austin, what do you think of all the different companies that are currently using blockchain in the healthcare space and already have a proof of concept or already have an app developed that are trying to do almost the same thing that you're doing? Do you find them to be competition or how does what do you think of them? So we, we view them as partnerships, potential partnerships, and they're no difference to us than, than you know, the people already doing this, uh, IQVIA, uh, Cerner, Epic, that are selling large amounts of data. Um, how our model works is 
Um, you know, we can help people acquire users. We can help people sell data. And if we sell data sourced off another platform, if, if we're partnered, let's just say potentially we, we can partner with Epic and Cerner, if we ever sell any of that data on behalf of patient consent with, with their control of, of selling it, then when that transaction hits, we're going to give Cerner or Epic or IQVIA, we're going to give them a payout. So those companies, those bigger companies, we, we want to turn their cold data into warm data. So when people buy their data right now, it's cold. It can't be interacted with. It can't be followed up. Um, on our platform, when that data is sold, it, it can be interacted with. It can be followed up. It can be questioned. It can be cross-referenced in, in various studies. So, you know, we want to turn their cold data into warm data. And the other people who are in the same space as us, I really think this is going to go back down to the community level. Um, you know, there's, there's people who've been here, uh, you know, we, we, we actually launched, um, almost six months before the, the, the humanity and the my 31 app, well, I, I say launched, we filed for our LLC and started talking to people. Um, and, and, you know, they're a lot farther along than us. Um, there's people who've been around longer than us and are almost at the same level, but regardless, I think we're going to see demographics playing a big role here. I think, I think we're going to see, um, you know, people in different areas controlling different demographics. And I want to, you know, I want to capture my backyard. I want to go into my community, Northwest Florida, and I want to introduce Northwest Florida to the My31 app. I, I already am. I'm telling everybody to go download it. Every time I see their stuff, I share it, I like it, I comment. Um, and, and that's the same with, with HealthWiz and, 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 and Better Path and uh, um, Citizen Health. Um, you know, I, I I really want this to be, you know, a movement where, where all these companies are working together because it, it all boils down to people. If someone wants their data on another system, it shouldn't be up to that system to decide whether that data goes or not, you know. So what I'd like to see is, is various communities come together um, based off their locations because there's a lot of people traveling. I, I want to see this as a conversation moving from the big heads in tech at conferences and, and TED Talks to, you know, neighbors and, and, and bosses and principals and, and, and city government mayors. Um, oh, I, I think that's, we're going to see a big difference if we see a transition there. Um, so, yeah, as far as, you know, doing them as a, a competitive analysis, um, I, I think we can work together unless, unless they get so big that we just, there's no way we could benefit them or if they move into our community and they capture our community, you know, that nullifies us. But I think that different communities and different cultures are going to respond to this movement differently. Hmm. Um, I think that uh, Los Angeles is going to respond different than uh, Vernon, Florida, which is a town I, I, I spent a lot of time growing up in. Um, and, and being able to know these cultures and know how people think and tick and how to interact with them and, and how to captivate them and get them to care about this, I, I don't think is as universal as people are implying. So I want to, I want to tell you a little bit of a funny story. Um, there was a, a, a documentary on Netflix. Uh, it was around before Netflix. It was actually made in the seventies, but it was on Netflix for almost a year last year. It was called Vernon, Florida. You can watch it on YouTube. And, Filmmaker Errol Morris wanted to go make a documentary on this town. He wanted to originally call it Nub City because in the 70s, this made headlines. 
insurance companies were going, why this little town of Vernon, Florida? A few hundred people. There's no factories around here. Why do they have such a high dismemberment claim rate? Hmm. They sent in some uh, private investigators into town, and it turned out the residents of Vernon, Florida were claiming their hands, their feet, their arms, their legs, and cutting them off to claim the insurance money. The preferred method was actually to cut off your left arm and your right leg so you could still use a crutch. Wow. Um, so Errol, <laughs> Errol Morris went into this town and tried to make the documentary, and then you know, he got he got attacked a couple times. Um, you can actually, if you Google Vernon, Florida, you can watch a vid- video of a city council brawl, a fight that broke out in the city council. And there's there's a guy that has a hook hands, and he's punching this lady with his hook hand. It's That's yeah, Vernon, man. I, I actually I didn't live in Vernon. I lived in a town called Carryville. And back, you know, from segregation, there was an African American. So if you were black, you lived in Carryville. If you were white, you lived in Vernon. But when they desegregated the schools, all the kids in Carryville went to Vernon. I lived in Carryville, and um, I I moved there from a little town called Destin, Florida, which was a little bit more uh, progressive and liberal, you may say, than Vernon. Vernon, I was taught creationism in Vernon schools. Hmm. Um, just to give you an idea of how, how backwoods it is. Um, there's there's going to be a lot of, of rural areas and and just various cultures that, that are responding to this differently. And I notice this in my day-to-day conversation when I, when I talk to different people or when I talk to people from California and New York and Texas about this, I, I, I see little differences. It, it does boil down to human rights and it does boil down to, you know, health care and, and different things. But at the end of the day, I think we are going to see uh, uh, various adoption rates based off of cultures and demographics. I think, I think that that is going to come into account, and I think that a, a divide and conquer strategy is is really what's going to achieve mass adoption here. Maybe one company, you know, maybe maybe it'll be um, HealthWiz, maybe it'll be My31, maybe it'll be us that achieves total mass adoption by themselves. I. You know, I don't. I don't really think it's going to happen that way. I, I think it's going to be a, a collection of growth and acquisitions, and and you know, fifteen twenty years of, of hard work on all of our ends um, before we really you know start trying to come together and, and, and work together. But I, I I think that's the route it's going to go, and I might be wrong, but that's just my view, and that's how I view all these other companies. They're you know, if, if I'm talking to a business analyst or a potential investor, yeah, they're competition but they don't have to be. And just, just how we work with my health, you know, they have a personal health record platform. That's a lot of, of what we wanted to do. If you look at our prototype, we have a health journal and all kinds of things they have in a QR code system. Um, but we have niche values. They want to be like a bank of trust for medical information. They'll never sell it. Um, we're able to do that for them. And, you know, if we ever mess up or if we ever do an analytic service on their data they don't like, they can scrap us and keep my health. So I think we're also going to see, you know, various niches form. I think, you know, different companies are going to find different criteria they're good at or things they want to capitalize on. And and I, I think this is going to – I don't think that we're going to see a huge mass adoption by any single company in, in the next couple months to even a couple of years. I think this is going to be a long road, and I think mm-hmm. – that there's a potential for partnerships there. Some interesting insight. Thank you for that. So, yeah, I kind of 
want to wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to leave the audience with? Uh, any information? Actually, before I do that, I'd like to know who your favorite business leader or person that has inspired you um, the most. It's it's definitely a guy in my local area. His name is Quint Studer. He uh, he he was a uh, behavioral therapist for 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 children, and then he wound up starting a medical consulting firm called uh, Studer Group, which he wound up selling to Huron Group a number of years ago, and then he still has his own part of it with partnered with Huron Group. Um, and then he has Studer Community Institute. Uh, he, he's a he's a philanthropist to our local area, so he's really big on going into the marginalized areas and helping them, you know, learn things like uh, you know concrete and skill work, carpentry. He's really big on on giving back to your community instead of using your community to make a lot of money and then moving to to Silicon Valley. He's he's really big on you know using your community to help yourself and then you know once you're there give back to your community um he's actually the first person i pitched and he was really really nice and professional i was very unprofessional and even with my you know young unprofessional mind and i'm I'm just thinking you know hey it's a great idea introduce me to people and, and and help us acquire some money he he really opened my perspective and uh inspired me that ideas don't really do anything it takes action and he inspired me to take action whereas for a few months this was november of 2017 where i had been talking about it for a few months to people um but he inspired me to take action and he's a great leader you know he he posts uh, a news column in our local newspaper once a week about um, how to be a good leader how to handle business issues um how to you know make a good company culture how to communicate um how to inspire people and um, how to be involved with your community. So, so I think my favorite—that's that's probably my favorite business person. That's great, fantastic. Um, can you share with us the roadmap in the next year or two for Unity Health Score, and then we can, uh, you know, finish up here? Yeah. So, so our roadmap is we want to get our product with My Health launched as a as a dual health wellness service, and then, you know, maybe we're hoping at the six to eight month mark after launch, we'll have 10,000 users. And at that point, we want to start selling data. And after a year, we're hoping that we can clearly demonstrate, hey, we can sell data. We can acquire users. Here's how much money we're doing. And at a year, hopefully we'll have enough to integrate with blockchain. And if we don't, we'll do a seed round to cover the rest of what we don't have. Um so a year mark, we're hoping to have a blockchain. We're hoping to be fully operational. And at the two-year mark, we, we really just want to scale our users up um, and, uh, and, and, and just grow from there, whether that's you know, just sticking to ourselves or acquiring various partners or working in acquisition. Only time will really tell. But um, after the year mark, just just a growth from that point, just growth in users, and and um, we, we really want to empower people with their data. We want to show people not just the financial aspect of here's how much money we can generate you, but here's the control you have over the market. Here's the difference between them buying the data about you from other people and then buying the data from you. Here's how more how much more interactive that data can be. Here's how much 
more it vouches for its credibility and its authenticity and how up to date it is. Um, you know, we, we want to eventually join the fight with some of these other glorious, beautiful companies um, and trying to make, uh, you know, the legal battle here. Um, and then, yeah, that's, that's our, that's our roadmap right now. Got you. Uh, well, that sounds great. Austin, thank you so much for sharing, you know, your personal story uh, and talking to us about your company and your vision. And I think that, you know, I wish you the best of luck and, uh, I know it's going to be a tough road ahead, but you know, keep chugging along and uh, hope to speak with you again very soon. Thanks again. Likewise, Rick. Thanks for having me. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group t.me slash health unchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.